the hardest thing I've learned um, as a leader is uh, how fast you need to cut bait when you realize someone isn't up to your standards and they can't get up to your standards. Yep. If it takes interviewing 50 people, we don't lower the bar, yep. right? So my philosophy has always been hire crazy smart people, give them the tools, the training, and the most important, the empowerment to succeed, yep. right? And give them the rope to really run with it and yep. let them loose. So, you know, you've got to get them goals, you've got to give them parameters, but if you hire the right people and you're all going the same direction, then it just makes life a lot easier. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today on another episode of The Fort. I have a really good friend of mine, and this is going to be an awesome conversation with Stacy Relton. Stacy is co-owner and managing partner at Straight Capital in Dallas, Texas. We met a couple years ago from our mutual friend, Stanton. And Straight is growing like crazy, and I'm going to let her talk about that. They are a certified fund administrator. So thank private equity, thank hedge fund, outsourcing all their back office to Stacy's business. Stacy, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for hosting. Can you give me like the two minute cliff note version of who you are and your story? Absolutely. So I'm Stacy Ralton, as you mentioned, uh, born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and uh, a very, very proud LSU grad. So go Tigers. <laughs> yep. I moved to Dallas after getting my undergrad and my MBA, started an audit, uh, did that for about a year and a half and realized I'm a little bit too outgoing to be an audit. So yes, you are. Spent, yes, spent most of my career in business development, fell in love with it, had the pleasure of taking the culture index survey and, and realizing what I kind of already knew that I'm a pretty large rainmaker. Yeah. So if you need gasoline on the fire, I'm your person. <laughs> so I was at a company at that time and, and was really uh, launching them outside of Dallas into Houston and other markets, kind of made a decision that uh, I might want to go somewhere and do my own thing and ended up joining Straight about uh, a little less than five years ago. Uh, my husband actually started Straight about 13 years ago, uh, ran it exclusively for nine years. Uh, we kind of had the discussion about whether or not to keep it that small company that was awesome, you know, definitely Texas-based, a lot more of a kind of a cash cow small business, but yeah. it was it was awesome and had a great reputation, great foundation, uh, and whether it made sense to kind of really pour gasoline on it, make it the next, you know, middle market company. So uh, we made that decision. I joined straight. It's been a fun ride. Yep. So last like five years, I guess, a little less than five years ago that I joined, six months in, ended up stepping up into the managing partner role. And since then, I think we've gone from 10 employees to 57. Wow. We've grown 400, 450%. And really the big thing is we've gone from being kind of the Texas-based administrator to truly being on a global platform. So it's been a been a lot of fun. It's been a wild ride and uh, a lot of drinking from the fire hose. When I met Stanton, I just said, I need to meet somebody that is amazing at business development that can make shit happen. And the first person that came to mind was you. And that's when we met a couple of years ago. I've talked to some of your peers and words like she's got magic. She has pixie dust. Like she can get shit done. 
is what consistently comes up. Were you born with that? Did you learn it? Were you trained with that? Like, why are you good at making shit happen? Man, I don't know. I can walk in a room, have a few drinks and walk out with some deals. And it is, it it is awesome. No, uh, you know, I think some of it, there's obviously a skill to it without a doubt, but I do think a lot of it is truly how you're wired. You've got to have the wiring of a rainmaker or the wiring, you know, a a propensity for, for sales. Now, once I realized I had that and I realized I had the skill then, or I had the kind of the foundation then it is a skill. So it's something that I worked on. I paid a lot of attention to body language. I think what makes me really good is strategy. So, you know, if I'm going to uh, sell something, then I have a strategy behind it. There are people that I'm going to target. I'm truly hunting. So, you know, I don't don't just go to a networking event, stand around, have a few drinks and, you know, a few hors d'oeuvres. I'm there. I immediately survey the room. I -hmm. know who the players are and I'm out hunting you know, you're not going to see it, right? Like I'm, I want to be the life of the party, but the life of the party, they get shit done. Yep. So I like to say, I'm, I'm not uh, your typical cup of tea. I'm more of a shot of whiskey in a teacup. I love it. Not everyone's not, not for everyone, but if you like it, then, you know, you go, go big or go home. So when you walk into a room, most people don't know what's about to hit them. Um, most of the time, not, it depends if it's, if it's a market that I'm known yeah. when I show up, it, it's, it changes. So your husband ran this business for nine years, built an awesome company and you got involved in call it year nine. What was like your first couple months on the job? Like, did you know what you were showing up to do or like what started this next growth trajectory of almost 500% in four years? So we made the decision as a couple. Yep. So I was somewhere else and kind of at the point of making the decision, do I become a partner here mm-hmm. or do I go out and do something on my own? And were you doing sales at your own? I was. Okay. I was. And to be honest, I looked at it and said, look, I've I've grown this company, doubled it in a couple of years. Yep. You know, I felt like I had built a very solid name in the market, but I didn't want to be a 5% partner. So when I kind of looked at that, I stepped away and said, you know, I, w- I want to come into something where I can have true decision making and where I can really grow something that's mine. Yep. And so I really was going to start a competitor. And my husband and I had the conversation and he was wonderful and very supportive. And then the more we talked about it, he said, look, we have an accounting services firm. It's a different industry. It's a fund administrator. But come over here and we can run it together. And he had a great foundation. I mean, the reputation was just unmatched. A great client base. I mean, solid people. I yep. mean, sharp, sharp, sharp team. But they needed a little gasoline. And yeah. he had been toying around with, you know, finding the right business development person and hadn't found it. And so the conversation definitely went from, I'm not a business development person. If I come in, I'm a partner. Yep. Right. So I was there three days and got a little ticked off and went to New Orleans for a couple of days, <laughs> had some fun. And then returned and said, okay, let's let's work out how this is going to work. Yep. So it was, um, I was there six months and ended up stepping up a little bit earlier than we planned, but he was great. He's, you know, he had built a great foundation, so I had something to build on. Yep. And, um, you know, he moved into a little bit more of a strategic role and a, and a chairman role. And to be honest, I didn't have anyone to tell me no. And so I just kind of said, you know what, we're here and we need to get there. And how do I do that? And charted kind of a strategic plan. For sure. And then I went out elephant hunting and not elephant hunting in in Texas. I went out elephant hunting in New York and said, if we're going to become a global provider, we have to have New York names, you know, as our clients and total strategy went out, hunted clients, 
hunted uh, directors, good team members, and really kind of built a winning culture that's a high-performing culture. And and it's been great. And fast forward to today, we've had a lot of success. I feel like we're just getting started. Yeah. And I have a great team and I'm just lucky enough that they continue to you know, follow my crazy ideas and, and my big goals. So you get there, you go to New Orleans, you kill it on Bourbon Street, you get back and you go elephant hunting. So did you have people making you intros up in New York or did you just kind of put together a list, get on the phone and start making it happen and then fly up there and start setting meetings? Like, what was your plan? So I've never been a cold caller. Like, that's just not been my strategy. Okay. Um, to be honest, when I moved from kind of the portfolio accounting world up to the fun space, I really thought a lot of my contacts would transfer. And what I learned is they're very different. So the contacts you have and the referral partners and the deal guys is a completely separate ecosystem from the actual fund managers and CFOs, and they really don't cross paths. So once I realized that, I thought, well, gosh, I'm starting over from scratch. (laughs) But I went back to that network and I said, okay, let's catch up. Let me tell you who I need to get to in your firm, whether it was a law firm, like, you know, whether it was a banker, whoever it was, who do I need to talk to? Who can you introduce me to? And so good people know good people. And that's always been my strategy. Your A players are going to surround themselves with A players, bar none. Yep. That's that's just how we run. So I went back to the bulls in the market and said, what bulls do you know? <laughs> and they introduced me. And then, you know, it was a good introduction, a warm introduction. They knew my reputation. And then once I shared the reputation of straight, they did a little research, then the referral started coming in. Yep. And I've always been one. You send me a referral, I'm going to take care of you. Like, yep. it, you know, it's not a tit for tat, but it's it's an ecosystem and it's not a one-way street. Right. So um, really started doing that. I found out who our competitors were in town. Yep. There was a lot of acquisitions happening. We all know some acquisitions go well and some acquisitions do not. Yep. So I had a strategy that if I stayed really close to the companies that were recently acquired, culture could possibly change. Yep. And if so, then you might have less than happy teammates who look for other jobs. <laughs> so you can suddenly pick talent. And uh, if too many people leave, then the client account's really hard to service. And so um, I strategically found out who are the big clients there and who holds the keys to the kingdom. Right. Who, who are the directors, the managing directors that really hold the keys to the kingdom? both with clients, but also with the team. Like, who does the team follow? And then I just started, like, picking them off. Recruiting. Uh Uh-huh. Recruiting and then, mess. you know, and then what's funny is, is some of it I did where I'd find out a name and I'd hunt the prospect, you know, and then other times I took a different approach and hunted the employees. Yep. And, And then kind of from that angle, you wait six months, you don't have to do anything. You never reach out, you never do anything. Yep. All of a sudden people are like, where did all my people go? And they're all at straight. Yep. And so, you know, a handful of different strategies that I use. Yeah. But yeah, it was always very strategic. How'd you kill your first elephant? Did, was that a direct company that you hunted or was that bringing a, a managing director over from somebody that brought some whales with him or her? Man, I'd have to think about it. Um, I had a couple that kind of came in in the same time and they okay. took a long time. Uh, What's one, the sales cycle like? You know, it depends. Sometimes if it's a if it's not a whale that's having to do a big conversion because a conversion can take, you know, 90, to What's a conversion? 90 plus days. So people nowadays, I'd say 98% of hedge funds use an administrator. Okay. Private equity is running about 
55% right now, but the trend is more and more outsourcing. Sometimes we get a call from a first-time fund manager. They're breaking off of another fund and they're launching one. That's easy, right? Yeah. You, you literally set them up. You have everything from scratch. Uh, a little bit more time-consuming is a conversion. So okay. they're using another administrator and we're going to get them off of that system and we're going to get them onto our system. And depending on how much data they have, yeah. uh, it could be two years of data on one fund. We brought over one that was over 10 years of data mm -hmm. across, I think, four funds. Yeah. And it was something crazy, like 90 million rows of data. Oh, wow. And so that was more of a, you know, three to six month, get them on board yep. process. And, you know, we always will run one quarter parallel. So there's no issues. Okay. So let's just start diving into straight. So what is straight? It's a fund administrator, but what does that mean? Right. So straight is a fund administrator, like you said. And what that what that means to boil it down simply is that we do outsourced accounting, investor services, and compliance for any type of private equity fund, hedge fund, venture capital, really anything that falls under that alternative assets umbrella. So yep. it can even be a family office that has some um, investments that they do. Uh, nowadays, we're seeing more and more kind of a hybrid model where it'll be somewhat of a private equity fund, but there's a liquidity asset or aspect to it, um, similar to a hedge fund, or sometimes we've seen a hedge fund that will kind of add that more long-term private equity side to it as well. But it's anything that falls under the alternative on alternative assets. And we exist, uh, for those that aren't familiar with the industry, uh, the industry had been around for a long time, but after Bernie Madoff and kind of all the fraud that happened there, our industry really boomed. And so, you know, we're, we're not legally required. You can certainly start a hedge fund or private equity fund and not have an administrator. However, when you start raising capital and you get set, get outside of that friends and family circle, uh, they want you to have an administrator. So we're gonna make sure that the performance numbers are accurate, the management fee calculations, they're accurate. Um, and then really the most important thing that they look at is we control the bank account. Yep. So we literally get the money from the investor. You know, we make sure they're a qualified investor. You know, we send the money to the fund manager, but if he or she liquidates the portfolio, so they sell out their stocks, they sell out their bonds, or they sell out the companies they own, right. then they can't take the money and run off to the Caymans. So yep. we actually get it back and then we do the distribution to the investors, which is why it's not legally required, yep. but you'll have a hard time raising big money if you don't have an administrator. So like a big investor, if somebody's going off to start their own hedge fund and they're seated by some endowment that's putting in a billion dollars, the, the endowment will say, Great, I'll give it to you, but straight must be it's, in the picture. Exactly. Yeah. It'll it, it'll be typically where the first or second call, and so, you have to have two names in your legal docs. Usually, it's you know who your attorney is. So you have a fund formation attorney. Yep. And uh, they'll ask who your administrator is before you even pitch. Do you hire the fund administration attorney, or are they doing it and you're just working? They in collaboration do. Usually, with them? usually we're kind of the quarterback, and yeah. so sometimes the fund formation attorney will get the first call. But sometimes we'll get the first call and they'll say, hey, you know, recommendations for a fund, a fund formation attorney or recommendations for an auditor. So they always want to know, like, you know, you have re your reputable counsel yeah. and that you have a reputable administrator and then a reputable auditor. So they don't want it to be, you know, Joe Bob's CPA or Joe Bob's administration. For sure. Like if you had to put a percentage on it, is it usually the hedge fund manager that's electing to hire you or is it usually driven by the investor? Depends on the situation. Okay. So it's we're always technically hired by the fund. Yeah, by yeah, the fund yeah. you're hired by them, but um, who's pushing it? Depends. And it, it, the investor will push 
if they have a favorite, then they may say, look, I'll invest y'all seed you, but I want you to use straight because I know them. They have a great reputation. No questions asked. Other times they'll say, okay, what administrator are you using? Make sure it's not, you know, five person shop. They want one that has expertise in their, you know, field. So if you're if they're a credit-based fund, they're going to want to say, hey, do you have any credit-based clients? Or if yeah. they're a private equity fund and they're $3 billion, they're going to say, you know, I want to know how many billion-dollar clients you have. I don't want to know that you just have a bunch of $50 million, you know, friends and family funds. Yeah. So they they usually will do a little bit of due diligence, especially yeah. if you're getting an institutional money. Yeah. And so usually we get a call even before they become a client or right when they become a client. And it says, hey, I'm introducing this big allocator or this potential allocator they've got some due diligence questions. Yeah. And so they'll send us the questions, we'll fill them out, we send them, we have our own SOC 1 type 2 report and Grant Thornton does it, they've done a great job. Uh, we send that over and then we send over our own DDQ. Typically that answers all of their questions, but um, sometimes there'll be a follow-up call. Uh, we've even had allocators fly in from New York without notice and just show up and say, okay, we just wanted to see the office and meet the people and you know, ask a few more questions yeah. and that's usually it. And it, you know, it helps the fund manager raise capital because they know that the controls are in place and that, you know, great reputation. Are they getting involved with you after they've raised their money or are you involved on, let's call it a new fund, like while they're in the process of raising money? Ideally in the process. Okay. So, but not always. So okay. a lot of times um, we get a call and it's an idea and they've got a theory and, you know, they haven't hired anyone yet. They're just getting started. Sometimes they've raised the capital. We like to come in in the beginning because we've launched so many funds that we can kind of lay the land and say, look, you know, you can use any fund formation attorney you want, but here's some suggestions. You know, you can use any audit firm, but here's what to think about. Um, And then if they run into any questions, and a lot of times we'll have the conversations with them and say, okay, what is it you're trying to do on the fee side? And then what does your legal docs that are being drafted say? And sometimes they don't always say the same thing. I was actually on a call yesterday. Um, They're having to redraft some of their legal docs that were done before we got involved. Right. Um, And there's nothing wrong. It's just that the way they're trying to calculate fees and the way the legal docs read are not quite the same thing. Right. So. Do most people uh, starting a new fund and maybe it has to do with size, maybe it has to do with reputation. Are they using placement agents to raise this money or most people do it internally? It depends. It's all relationship-based, right? right? So, And it also depends on how big of a fund. Yeah. Usually people will try to raise some of their own. What's considered big and small in your world? Oh, gosh. Like what's the smallest client you have? What's the biggest? So the smallest I would say that you can launch with and have a paycheck as a fund manager is 25 million. Okay. Now you can do it with less than that, but after you pay your, you pay your fees, your administrator, your legal, your audit, you just, you're not going to make any money. Right. Um, so typically, you know, hedge funds like to launch at 50 million and above. That's, that's kind of a number where you're going to not feel like you're working for free as a fund manager. Because the, because you're paid out of their 2%, if it's like a two and 20, or is it two to them and then your fees on the side of that too? So typically, um, and it kind of depends, we've seen a lot of fee compression in the last few years. Yep. So it used to always be two and 20 yep. on the hedge fund side. We're seeing a lot of one and a half and 15. Yep. And something around there is, is more common on the hedge fund side nowadays. But are uh, you paid out of the one and a half or are you paid in... Like so, one and a half goes to the hedge fund manager and you're a separate line item. We're a separate line okay. item. So typically we're paid out of, we are paid out of the fund. Yeah. So one one good thing about using an administrator is most legal docs will say, you know, you can pay certain things out of the fund before the performance. And it's 
administrator, your attorney, and your audit and tax. Yep. Sometimes your compliance can come out as well. Other than that, you know, your office space, your employees, your payroll, your, you know, computers you buy, all of that deal expenses typically come out of the management company, which sits above the fund. Got it. So small clients, let's just call it 50. What's your, what's a large client? Oh, I've, I've got clients for 8 billion under the umbrella. And so, and you'll tend to see funds. exactly across multiple funds. It kind of depends on the hedge fund side. If you're looking at Texas, they tend to be a little bit smaller. I mean, yeah. just to be honest, we have very large funds here in Texas, both hedge fund and private equity. Uh, but in general, they're a little bit smaller than New York. Yep. So we see a lot of hedge funds that are, you know, 50 to 250 yep. here. Um, there are some bigger ones, but you do see a lot of that. Now on the private equity side in general, private equity has been king the last few years. Yep. And it's a lot harder to do much with 50 million. Yep. So most private equity funds that we see are going to launch 150 to a billion, yep. right? And in Texas, you see a lot of uh, a lot of that kind of 150 to 750 number per fund. Now, a manager, unlike a hedge fund where you typically will have one fund, uh, the private equity side may run four funds, yep. right? So under the umbrella, you might you might have four or five billion. But in in general, it's just New York has the bigger funds, um, but not always the case. So you're doing accounting and administration and things of that nature. I'm sure you get asked this, but why are y'all better than your competitors? If it's, is it a, because isn't the work kind of the same or is it not? Yeah, we, we joke about this all the time. We like to say we're not a commodity, but we're very familiar that we are, mm-hmm. right? It's accounting, yep. it's administration. The one thing that has really set us apart over the years um, is our commitment to quality yep. and service. And I know everyone says that, but if you were to stack my team and their resumes against someone else, I do not, I do not cut corners in hiring. I yep. will not lower my standards. Yep. Um, the hardest thing I've learned um, as a leader is uh, how fast you need to cut bait when you realize someone isn't up to your standards and they can't get up to your standards. Yep. If it takes interviewing fifty people, we don't lower the bar, yep. right? So my philosophy has always been hire crazy smart people, give them the tools, the training, and the most important, the empowerment to succeed, yeah. right? And give them the rope to really run with it and yeah. let them loose. Yep. So, you know, you've got to get them goals, you've got to give them parameters, but um, if you hire the right people yep. and you're all going the same direction, yep. then it just makes life a lot easier. And then on an ongoing basis, uh, service. Yep. So it's funny, I'll have people ask if, you know, if we get a lot of our business from Texas because they value that boutique level of service. And I'm like, you know, it's funny, a lot of our clients are out of New York. Yeah. And they joke that they might be New Yorkers, but they don't want to work with New Yorkers. Right. You know, so they want to know, especially your private equity funds. If I have a question, I want to call or talk to someone directly. I want to know that, you know, my team, the director is so and so, and here's my controllers, and here's my staff and seniors. And I don't want that team to change. I'm not right. calling a one eight hundred number. I'm not calling a client service desk. Yeah. I want to call my people who know yeah. my fund, you know, and get that response immediately. And then, um, yeah, we've never had a restatement. We've always, always been very keen on quality. And I think you see that when it's a privately owned business, you know, we own the business. Um, As long as we're happy with the margins and we're happy with the way business is running, we don't have to cut corners, right? And so, and we, while we grew fast the last four or five years, we had nine years of foundation behind us. And that makes a difference. We didn't have to, you know, cobble together the foundation while we were growing. Right. John had yeah. built a phenomenal foundation. So it's made it, I think, a high-performing speed car that's, you know, not put together with, you know, missing screws. Yeah. 
yeah, we've talked a lot on the, on the culture thing. It's, it's, it's basically what you're willing to accept is your culture. Yeah. If you're willing to lower your bar, that's your culture. Exactly. Um, and it's, it's got to be set at the top, but it's got to be bought in from everyone. Yep. So I've always talked to people as I've built the culture here. You know, what was your culture at this company? How did you do this? And, you know, you talk to the leader, but then sometimes you talk to the team members and you don't hear the same thing. It's like, oh, they have values. They put them up in the break room. Like there's posters. We've really instilled in people that our values are really important and that our culture is really important. So if you've ever, you know, I tell people, we don't use the word family. So we're not a family because everyone's got a crazy uncle or aunt that you can't get rid of, right? And that you just accept for whatever they do. Um, I've tried to build this like you would build an NBA team or any kind of sports team where it's like, look, we're going to hire the best. We're going to recruit the best. And as long as you're performing, it's great. But if there's a better seat on a bus for you than here, then we're going to make that trade. And so we've tried to model after the San Antonio Spurs. Like we don't have one superstar and a bunch of bench players. Right. I want every single person, you know, on this team uh, to be a top performer. Yep. And and my philosophy is individual success and team success, they're not mutually exclusive. Right. But I do believe that you can't really have team success without individual success across the board. You can't have five great, smart, ambitious people and a bunch of coasters. Right. So I'm very upfront in the interviews. No one's hired without me meeting them. Uh, and I get the final veto. I don't care what your test scores are or what this is. If I find something in the interview that is not right, yep. I absolutely will veto and start over. But yeah, and and running it and letting people know that they're going to be rewarded for their own individual success, right? So I, this isn't a socialist company. Yeah. So you're going to get promoted based on your performance and you're going to get paid based on your performance, right? And so not yeah. everything is equal. And if you build that, And I think if you have the right people who truly buy into it, if you were to ask my staff or ask my interns, I would be 100% confident that you would get the exact same message from them and you would see it the exact same as what you hear from me. So it's not just words. At what size do, like we have listeners that run PE funds or NP or hedge funds at what size do maybe compliance or things change? Like if you're a $100 million fund, this is what you get. Mm-hmm. But if you're a billion, it's a totally different game. Or is there a point which things change? Or is there multiple tiers which things change? Things undeniably change when you get $150 million under the umbrella. Why? Or above. So that's the point at which you go from state registration to SEC registration. Okay. So on the compliance side especially... You can start a fund and whether you're running 1 million of your own dollars or you're running, you know, 149 million, right? As long as the value of those assets do not top 150, then all you have to do is file annual forms. And does that have to be in one entity? What if you own lots of assets and it's a it's, billion, but it's, it's in two under, different entities? It, no, it's under the umbrella. Okay. So if you, if you, you, you could have four funds and if they only make up to 148, 149, you're okay. Got it. But if you have one that hits 150 or you have 10 that hits 150, it, it's it's per umbrella. So if you're not 150 million in value, so you have to kind of be careful because if you're private equity, you're looking at the value and not just what you bought it at. So if you bought it at 120 and the value of gas, oil and gas goes up, you can hit 150 really fast. So people start typically heading that direction once they're 100 plus, you know, starting to put some things in. But then I have I have managers that are 50 and 75 that want a compliance program. So we just kind of scale it down. So if you're 
under 150 million and it's not required. For some clients, all we do is those annual forms that are due the end of March. Uh, For a lot of them, what we'll do is the annual forms and we'll provide them with uh, a compliance manual that's right-sized, right? Big thing you never wanna have is a 150-page compliance manual that's built for the billion-dollar fund that makes absolutely no sense that you're 100 million and that you're not actually gonna follow. You'll get- all make the compliance manual? We do, we do. Um, and we'll kind of make it right size because obviously what you need at 100 million and what you need at a billion is not the same. Um, so we'll do the compliance manual. Um, we do mock interviews, mock exams. So whether it's a state exam or an SEC exam, we'll literally go through the whole process and pretend that you're, you know, being audited so that you can see what it's like. And then there's a whole list of things we do. So you look for, you know, anti-insider trading. You look for conflicts of interest. I mean, we're it's kind of an ongoing monitoring for a number of our clients that we do the ongoing. How would you know if somebody was insider trading? There is a whole, and a lot of this, go, I would ask my uh, my compliance department, there's a whole list of things that we watch for. And okay. so uh, everything has to be documented. Okay. So everything is documented, everything is reviewed, and we don't just do this once a year. Yeah. Um, we do this on an ongoing basis. And yeah. for most of our compliance clients that we you know, do the ongoing program for and not just the, you know, annual filings. We'll have meetings with them every two weeks or once a month at a minimum. And what's going on in your business? What are you looking to do? And they're like, oh, I think I'm going to raise more capital or I think I'm going to start a new fund. It's like, okay, well, we need to talk and look at your marketing documents. So we're going to be much more proactive and look at what's going on in the industry. Um, What are you hearing from investors? What are we hearing? What are you planning to do that might change things? And everything is documented. So we try to take that proactive approach before, you know, you go out and accidentally you know, give money to a political campaign that you didn't document that, you know, okay. could be a red flag. So, so you, then you get to 150 million, then what happens? You are required to have that full program. And that's federal? It is through the SEC. Okay. Is, is there, and, and what, what changes there that's different? So the only requirement under 150 is the annual filings. Now, a lot of people for best practices will do, you know, they'll kind of cafeteria plan. They'll do the four or five biggest things. If they know they're going to get above 150, they'll start doing things. Or if investors just want it. We see more and more investors and it doesn't have to be institutional investors. It can be a family office or individual that's like, I want some sort of compliance program. You don't have to do all, you know, 75 things, but I'd like for you to do the the big hot buttons that kind of give me a certain level of comfort. And so, you know, where it's a little bit more of a cafeteria plan if it's under 150. Now, once you hit 150, there's a whole list mandated by the SEC that you have to do on an ongoing basis. And so that's where, you know, we do the email review and we do all these things on an ongoing basis. Uh, we're looking, you know, we monitor you clients' all their emails. emails. We do. And there, there's systems that uh, you can run them through that look for certain words and look for, there's algorithms. And so there'll be, you know, we'll usually hook it up to a system and the system will go through everything and say, you know, here's the X number of emails that that pulled this up. Um, and then we just verify that it's so if an email says off. my friend Bernie Madoff, that's, that's getting <laughs> that, flagged. that would probably get flagged. <laughs> OK, so you're at, it's probably hard coded in, yeah. in all the systems, right? <laughs> I'm going to ask a dumb question. So if I if I raise a fund and let, I'm going to use an extreme example, I raise a thousand dollar fund and I put it in something and all of a sudden it's worth 150 million in two years. You may be I just, the most just, brilliant fund manager ever. I did do that once, but I, I won't. That's another episode. But I just raised $1,000. You're my one investor. Yep. And all of a sudden it's worth 150 million the next day. 
am I now in that category because the asset appreciated that much? Yes. Okay. So it's it's pure market valuation. Yep. And on private stuff, who's valuing this stuff? They it, have to mark to market quarterly? It depends. Yeah. Okay. And some of them market quarterly, a lot of them market annually. Yep. So depending on the fund, if you think about it, you're in real estate. So say you're a real estate fund. Real estate doesn't move that much yeah. on a you know month to month, quarter to quarter basis. So sometimes they will go and they will hire a third party valuation firm. Yeah. So all the accounting firms have them. There's also um, a number of companies that do valuation um, and that's kind of their specialty. Or sometimes they will have an internal model that yeah. will value those assets. Got and it. so most investors kind of require based on what's in their documents, annual uh, valuations. And you're not setting the valuations. You're set, just being told what they no. are. And we don't set the valuations because we feel like it would be a, a, a little bit of a conflict of interest. Yeah. You know, for us You'd to push them above that. Exactly. And then they it, need more. Yeah. And, and and we would, you know, we're accounting for the services. We're checking. We're verifying that the valuation was done, you know, either from a third party or that the valuation followed the model that they said they would follow. Yeah. follow. Um, so if we determine the valuation and then we tested the model, it, you know, it's yeah. not really a third party check. Is there another tier or is it just 150? There's no other there's amount. Or there, there's no other tier. Again. No, okay. the rules change there. Um, although, of course, as you get bigger and bigger, typically you will have larger and larger investors. So, you know, you're going to have large endowment funds, large pension funds that come in um, and they tend to have their own, you know, things that they want. Right. Yep. Like they might have a mandate that says whoever we invest in, we want our money while we're in the fund. We want it actually housed in a separate SPV. So we want an entity that sits next to the fund entity. And that is the only thing in that entity is our money. So I'm going to give you a hundred million or 10 million, whatever that number is, but you're going to have it in a separate entity. Now you're going to invest it along with everything else that is in that actual fund entity, but I want my money separately. And so for those, you know, we do the typical accounting on the fund and then we do it on the entity on the side. It would be the same as they if mirror each other. They mirror each other. So it would be the same as if that hundred million were in the fund. Yeah. But because they're a large, we'll see this in large endowments, pension funds and stuff like that. They just have certain things that they require. They don't all require it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so kind of the one thing with you're raising a fund or you're raising capital is how do you raise the capital you need? and not give away the farm, right? right? You can make one-offs, like you might have a standard fee structure and you're willing to give someone special treatment or you're willing to have this SPV or you're willing to do certain things, but only if that check is big enough yeah. that you warrant that is worth extra cost on the accounting side, extra cost on your audit side and just overall complexity, right? For so sure. you might have, we, we tell people try to have one or two kind of one-offs but you don't want a one-off for every single investor or it becomes a logistical nightmare on the back office. Yep. Okay. I wasn't going to ask this, but I think of like a Blackstone that raised like a $20 billion real estate fund. And and then you just said that there's a lot of investors that want their own SPV. Mm -hmm. So could they have a fund that has like hundreds of these SPVs that are all folding into the big fund? You can. And that's just a freaking disaster of accounting and stuff. It would it would cost you so much in accounting and audit because think about it. It's, yeah. It it would be that many entities, even if they mirror each other. Yeah. Um. Sometimes they'll have different fee structures. Yeah. Right. So if someone's gonna uh, give you a hundred million, you're probably gonna charge them a little bit less. So does right? Blackstone outsource that fund administration? You think, or do they do that internally? I think they do a combination, and yeah. I'd I'd have to go look. It's 
I honestly couldn't tell you for sure. Yeah. Um, the really big guys sometimes will do some of it in house and yeah. then have, um, if you're really big, sometimes they'll do some in house or they'll have an administrator and then yeah. they'll have another administrator do shadow accounting. So you'll actually have two people doing it yeah. as, as a kind of verification or whatever. You obviously get a view at how the best hedge funds and private equity fund managers run their business. Aside from obviously having good returns, which is why you stay in business long term, what are just a couple things that stand out to you that separate great managers from like your run of the mill from an operational standpoint, capital raising? Like, are there certain things that if if I'm a fund manager listening to this would be like, damn, this is what from your view makes people great? The number one thing is the ability to stay in the lane in the highest, best use of your time. So the biggest mistake we see is that a fund manager has had great success with a large fund or a large institution, right? They've got the returns. They can prove that this was their individual success. They decide, I'm going to go out on my own or I'm going to go with a partner and we're going to launch a fund. What they don't realize is it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. What happens behind the curtain? So they know everything about the front office. They know how to make the investments. They you know, see the capital being raised, but they don't realize all the stuff of running a business. And, and you run a business and yep. I do too. There's a lot of the business that's just not sexy, right? Right. There's just a lot Most behind. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the stuff on the corporate side and stuff behind the, the scenes has to be done. And all of a sudden they're running a business. Yep. And so we always tell them, you know, avoid the temptation to build out everything in-house, especially when you're starting. Right. Like outsource your administration, outsource your payroll, outsource your compliance, outsource all that, have a smaller team. Number one, you you really want to outsource that kind of stuff because it's a fund level expense, right? Your administration yep. comes out of the fund and not out of your management fees yeah. or your performance fees. So you want it to run out of the fund, but you also don't want to have to manage six people off the bat. Right. And if you haven't ever built the accounting, why do you want to hire an accountant that you're then the person that's going to have to review it right. and oversee it? And then you have the risk of turnover, right? If you build a team out and someone leaves and you don't know that expertise, then you're stuck. Then you're spending time recruiting and then you're spending time doing this. So I would say the biggest thing is to really focus on what got you the success that you've gotten, right? Which is going to be raising capital and making the investments. Yep. And then the second thing I would say is you want to be heads down and making those returns, especially for the first year. But you also don't give up your network, yep. right? Because people are betting on you. Yep. They're not. They're no longer betting on the Goldman Sachs name or whatever name of the fund you came from, the Blackstone, right? Before, you didn't realize it, but you were a little bit reliant on that Blackstone name. Yeah. Then you go out and all of a sudden you're Chris. Yeah. And so, you know, they're, they're placing their bet in you. So, you know, even after you start raising capital and you, you've raised the fund and you're, you're investing the money, still stay in close contact with your current investors, with potential investors. Make sure that that network continues to grow, yep. right? And so that you can continue to raise money. Yeah. And I think people, those are probably the two mistakes that I see that are, that are people make. You mentioned... I'm just kind of fascinated by this, but you mentioned like email monitoring fraud. Have you ever caught it? We have. Um, it's been a while. And what happens when you catch it? Is it, do you like just warn them like stop or are you mandated as the administrator to like put the hammer down? And So luckily we haven't seen anything that was really fraud. Yeah. Um, 
we've seen usually it's small things that they don't think is a big deal. So you decide all of a sudden you're going to sit on your kid's school board. Not a big deal. Like you're going to sit on your kid's elementary school board. What you don't realize is you've now taken a public position. Ah, got it. So and they didn't tell you that they did that. You had to yes, find it. Out. I remember years ago, we were driving down the road and we see a sign. Yeah. And we're like, wait, what? what? Yeah. Wait, and immediately pick up the phone. They're like, well, it's just, it's just elementary school board. And you're like, it is a public position now. It, you know, you had to, people are voting for you. Yeah. So it's typically, luckily, um, you know, we're, we're very selective with our clients. Yeah. So we don't just take you on. We will do some background checks and, and some reputation checks, especially when we're doing um, the accounting and stuff, if we're not as familiar with you and, and the compliance. So I can't say that we've caught anything huge. Now, early on, um, my husband, before I joined the firm, had checked out some funds on behalf of some family offices, and, and we weren't doing the compliance, but he kind of ran an initial check on them, and he caught a couple of Ponzi schemes. And it was awesome because he was able to go back to the family office and say, do not invest in that. And that was right in like 08, 09, I'm wanting to say. And when people are running Ponzi schemes, uh, this might be the dumbest question I've ever asked. Do they know they're running a Ponzi scheme? Yeah, I think so. Do, it's yeah. never it's like, original. okay, yeah, it's, it's in broad. Okay. So it's it, it, maybe early on, it's like they made a mistake and they're going to try and make up for it. But once they're kind of in the loop, like they know. I think so. Yeah. I think, I think it's criminal activity. You just, you, you know what you're doing and you're, you know, something's too good. I always say if something is too good to be true, then you really need to look at it. So this might be a fun question. I had no idea I would ask it, but just given your uh, expertise and understanding how these funds run, and then you watch a documentary like Bernie where for decades, he managed billions of dollars and it was like the biggest cloud of smoke ever, but got away with it. How was he able to do this? And do you have to believe that there was a lot of people on the inside that understood what was going on? Because the way that it's told to the public was like, his wife didn't know, his sons didn't know. How do you even pull that off? So I've always wondered that. Yeah. I think um, if you were to look at the amount of scrutiny today that is is looked at funds. Because he clearly wasn't outsourcing his fund administration. So that's, yeah, yeah, exactly why, why our industry exists um, and why, you know, Bernie. Yeah. We get our own, we get our own, um, our own sock one and all of that. But absolutely. It's, uh, I have always wondered how things like spouses didn't know and close colleagues didn't know. And I'm not sure I a hundred percent believe that no one knows. I, I don't see how that's possible. Now, granted, I always look at it and think if my husband did that, I would absolutely know. But we're probably a little bit, I'm probably a little bit more savvy. Like I, we just, we're a little bit more open book. I know a little bit more. I'm a business person. So it might be a lot harder to get something like that past me. Um, But back in the day, there wasn't a whole lot of scrutiny, right? And I see now you're going to get audited. And we tell people it's not if, it's when. Whether you're state registered, you could be a $50 million fund. It, there's the number of audits that they do today, both state and SEC, is probably 10 times yeah. what it was five, seven years ago. Yeah. Uh, are you starting to see a lot of distressed funds being raised or is there is this a, is this a fundraising season like crazy right now or? Absolutely. We're yeah. seeing it start. Um, anytime you're, I mean, I think the pandemic, none of us knew, everything kind of slowed down, right? Like yeah. it's, it's not an expected event but going into what's a potential recession absolutely and so what you've seen now that you know we're what six seven months into covid is 
real estate is still depressed. Companies, the values are still depressed and oil and gas is still depressed. Um, We are seeing so many people start the conversations with us of, hey, I'm thinking of launching a fund, you know, uh, especially if they work for a company that's kind of pulled pulled down, pulled back. Um, So I have some friends who are investment managers and uh, the company she works for has totally buttoned down the hatches and said, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what the world looks like. We're not making any investments like until things change. Yeah. And this person's like, look, it's my career. This is ridiculous. We ought to be going um, hashtag offense. So um, someone that I know uh, gave a great speech in the beginning of COVID, Andy Eby, and he's CEO of um, Bickford Senior Living. And he's awesome. You'd love him. Um, But he did this whole speech to a bunch of CEOs and leaders on why instead of buttoning down the hatches and trying to ride out the storm and hide from it, and this is back in March, um, why we shouldn't go hashtag offense, right? Because the people that are going to win in this time are the ones that have the gumption, that have the vision, that are willing to go out and take risk, right? And now's a great time. If you're going to go and launch a fund or you've always wanted to launch a fund, you don't have to convince investors it's a good deal, right? Right. An investor, as long as it's someone who has money on the side, and we know we've heard for the last several years, there's a lot of money on the on the sidelines. Now is when you want to do it, right? Because you're going to make money just when the values go back to normal, right? right? So if you have the gumption to go out and start a fund or have a partner and y'all start a fund, absolutely. Yep. Um, there's going to be those that kind of you know shrink back, and there's going to be those that are opportunistic. So we're starting to see especially now that kind of people are back from vacation, back from Colorado, the kids are in school. Um, We've seen the ball start rolling really hard the last couple of weeks. How long does it take to raise a fund? Uh, I know it's a really loaded question, but if you're, let's just say you haven't, you're raising your first, you're, you got a great reputation out of, we'll just keep using Blackstone as the example. Are they usually like walking out the door of Blackstone, picking up the phone 24 hours later, calling their network, and then they're in business in like six months? Does it take a year? How long are we talking here? Like you said, that's a hard question. Yeah, it depends on your relationships. So we'll if you have great relationships and you've been at an awesome firm with a good track record, then you can launch pretty quickly. Like so 90 days. Yeah. Okay. So if you, the biggest thing is getting your legal docs done and getting your administrator. Um, some people will kind of off the record, start shopping that and kind of laying their plan before they ever leave mm-hmm. um, and kind of knowing, you know, kind of what they're going to do. And so they may start that ball before. Uh, depending on, make sure you always check your employment agreement. Yeah. Because some of these, especially if you're with a big institution like Blackstone, you probably, there's some pretty big clause that are probably in you. And so some people will wait and not do anything and not jeopardize it, which certainly if if you have that kind of employment agreement, you don't want to start off in business and trouble and litigation. Right. So um, assuming that you're able to, to leave, then you make that call. Typically you can get legal docs depending on how busy they are. And I will tell you, January through March is always, they're slammed. The lawyers are slammed. Everyone likes to get their year-end bonuses and then go off and start their own fund. Uh, so we see a lot of that. But yep. typically, you can get legal docs and get your back office set up in anywhere from, you know, 60 to 90 days if, if no yep. one's too backed up. And then it's how fast you can raise capital. If you have family money or you have a network that's going to give you give you capital, you can launch really quickly. Um, it's quicker to launch on the hedge fund side because you can start trading the day you get the dollars. Yep. 
Uh, on the private equity side, you can't do much with 50 million. Yep. So if you're wanting to launch 250, 350, 500, you may say, look, I'm going to raise what I can for three months. And whatever that number is, if that's 75 million, 100 million, 150, I'm going to close that tranche. I'm going to deploy that capital and I'm going to keep raising. Typically, people will raise for a full year. You on your website have something about a hybrid fund. What's a hybrid fund? So a hybrid fund, traditionally, you've seen hedge funds, which you know is very liquid. Typically, there's a lot of times a lockup period. So if you're a new investor, you come into a hedge fund. A lot of times you can't take that money out for, say, six months, sometimes a year, depending on what you say. Uh, You may not have a lockup period. It kind of depends. But after that, you can go in and out every month. So you as an investor can put more money into that fund or you can withdraw your money anytime. Usually it's on a monthly basis, depending the legal docs. On the private equity side, um, you know, they raise money at once, they close their capital raising, they make their investments, and typically your money is locked up usually seven to 10 years. Could be sooner, but typically you plan on committing that capital, handing it over, and seven to 10 years later, you get a great return. And what we see, especially when you're going into um, a little bit of an uncertain time, is people want a little bit of both, right? They like the idea of the private equity. They like buying an asset that they know is down. They like investing in the tangible companies, you know, distressed companies, but they also want a little bit of liquidity. And so we're seeing more and more launch where depending on the structure, you know, it might be 75% private equity, but maybe a quarter is, you know, a little bit more of a, of a hedge fund model or they're working a credit strategy, something that gives the ability for liquidity. You're probably not going to get the monthly liquidity to where you can come out, you know, or go in every month, but you might get a little bit of liquidity, however often the legal docs state. So do you do anything with public companies or are you going to ever touch like a SPAC? The, The word of 2020 is SPACs. Everything's a SPAC. You know, we haven't until okay. now. Now we have done some things that are more direct investments. Yeah. So say you don't want to raise a fund or you don't think you have the capital to raise a fund or for whatever reason, um, we're seeing more and more clients do direct investments. So yeah. what you'll do for that is typically a fund is a blind pool where I tell you my strategy, you give me a hundred million and then I actually go pick the companies that I buy, yep. right? So you don't have a say. Once you're in, you're in. We've seen more and more of the direct investments where you say, I am going to buy XYZ company yep. and then I'm going to come back with that company name and the financials yep. or at least an overview yep. and I'm going to ask you for $100 million. And you can either opt in yep. or opt out. And so you're almost running mini funds, if that makes sense. Yep. But an investor a lot of times can pick, you might have seven deals and they're only in five of them. Yep. And so it's a little bit more complicated, kind of like we talked about before on the SPVs. Yeah. Uh, each entity, each each deal is going to have its own waterfall yeah. and its own accounting. So it does get a little bit more complicated. But if you don't think that you can go out and raise the total that you want to raise and you kind of want to prove yourself, it's an easier way to say, look, I'm only going to need 30 million for this deal. So I'm only going to raise that 30 million. And then after that, then I'm going to find the next deal and I'm going to raise 30 million for that, 50 million for that. And then I'm going to close that. It kind of gives you a little bit of a stepping stone to where later on you can say, look, I deployed 250 million, even if it was over five deals. Next time I'm raising it all 250. And then I have discretion over doing that. And you asked earlier, we talked about it briefly, do people not deploy their capital? 
I haven't ever seen anyone not deploy it. Yeah. That legal doc will typically say, we plan to raise, you know, we plan to raise capital for X period of time. We will have X percent or all of our capital deployed within 24 months or whatever that time period is, right? So they'll deploy that capital over that that time period that's been agreed upon. And then typically the rest of the life cycle of the fund is really pumping up the the value of whatever they've purchased, whether it's real estate, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's operating companies, they're going to raise the value and then they'll start liquidating whenever they feel like it's, yep. you know, but I had a client a few years ago, raised a fund and completely liquidated it within three years and the returns were off the chart. Mm-hmm. And so just because, you know, they say it's going to be seven to 10 years, it could happen faster, yeah. right? This is a little unusual. You usually don't raise the capital and and sell out in three years. But the returns were so phenomenal yeah. that they turned around and their next fund was even bigger. Yeah. And they raised that, you know, as you can imagine, everyone right. came out of fund three, went into fund four, yep. and it was twice as big. How and then the, the the fundraising cycle is usually like every two years you start r- raising the next fund or two or three years. Yep, typically. Okay. Now, assuming that you're big enough to be able to have a team that can still oversee your current portfolio right. and then make new deals on the new one. Yeah. Sometimes if you're a small team, you might just run one fund yep. or you might run one fund and you might get five years down the road where you've deployed the capital, you've made a lot of the initial investments and it's a little bit of a waiting game yeah. or a little bit less intensive, yeah. then you might raise your next. If you have a big team, like the big, big funds, they'll typically kick it off every 18 months to two years capital raising. Got it. All right. You are a awesome business developer, but you're also a great leader and you've built a company. We've talked a lot about at what point did you kind of shift from Rainmaker? Not that you ever shifted away from it, but to building processes and systems and leading your team. So uh, just talking a little bit about what being the uh, captain of the ship's been like the last six months. Has it been tough on your team? How have you made it work? because you've got the pixie dust and the magic. Yeah, like, what, so it's what's funny. Um, my friends ask me this question a lot. Like, you know, you're so We've good in sales. Why would you get out of sales? Why, you know, why would you move into a leadership role? A lot more stress, a lot more responsibility. Uh, and what I what I tell people is, hey, you're still rainmaking, yeah. right? Like I came in and said, we are literally David and Goliath and we are going to, you know, we're going to do things that the big companies can't do. We're going to set goals that people would laugh at and be like, there's no way you can make them. And so I'm still rainmaking in a different way. You yeah. know, I sit in not on all of the, the business development calls. I have a team that does it now. But if there's big ones or if they're, you know, out of New York or if there's special relationship, then I will get a little bit involved. I'll go to the meetings. Um, but a lot of it, you're still rainmaking on the team, right? We talk about coaching a team. We talk about getting your team to not just do the bare minimum, not even to do a step above that, but hey guys, if we're gonna be scalable, and and right now we're looking at making acquisitions, if we're gonna put another company, a competitor on our platform, then our platform needs to be squeaky clean. We need to be best in class in every single aspect of our business, right? So I'm asking my team to not only do their day jobs, of client service, of accounting, of investor services, of compliance, of CFO or family office work, right? Because we do it all. I'm asking them to also put an extra time 
to automate things, to make sure everything is documented, to make sure that we're putting in these um, new workflow management system. We're putting in Rike, which not only is going to help our team out, we've been working on that the last six months, but it's going to give our clients full visibility and dashboard into, you know, where in that quarterly close we are, right? It's kind of making the pizza like Domino's does. Um, So I'm asking them not only to do what they were hired to do, but I'm asking them to go above and beyond and do these extra projects. People don't do that unless they believe in you and they believe in your vision, right? And they know that you have their best interest at heart, right? Like they know that I am their biggest cheerleader. I'm the biggest person to empower them. I'm the biggest motivator. And I have every single person's back. And it's great. Before COVID, I always spent the first 30, 45 minutes of my day coming in, saying hello to people. How are you doing? How's the family? You know, um, how's your dad if he got in an accident? How is this? You know, what's going on at work? You know, how's this engagement going? You know, Um, and then COVID happens and we're not all in an office and we're not all at the coffee pot. Right. And so I was very fortunate um, that I went through Stegen. I went through their executive program, their integral leadership program uh, about two years ago. And by the way, I could not recommend it enough. It was life-changing. Why? Absolutely. I have that question. So it's 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 a 52-week program. Yeah. And if you really go through it and you really do it, it will rewire you for the better as as a person, both on the professional side, the personal side. It's just, I like to liken it to... I've done my MBA where you did the finance classes, you did the operations classes, you did the accounting classes. That's great. And then all of a sudden you become a leader. And yes, some of that's important, but there's all this other stuff, right? That the intangibles that you learn on the job. I like to say that this ILP program was an MBA for people who are already executives, right? Or who are aiming to be executives. So they don't, they typically teach this only at the highest levels. So you're kind of surrounded by peers, but it, it's really good. And it gives you a lot of tools for leadership. So they they kicked off a series of weekly uh, speeches where they invited executives to speak. And as I mentioned before, that's when I heard Andy Eby speak. And really that spoke to me. And we, instead of sitting back and just saying, oh, our people are working remotely, you know, our people are, you know, at their houses and, and all this sort of stuff, um, The second we realized that we were going to have to do this and everyone relocate everyone home, uh, we proactively said, immediately revamp everything we do on the culture side, revamp everything we do on the recruiting side, revamp everything on the HR side. So I did, you know, in the beginning, the first couple of weeks, twice a week, I taped kind of a video message to the team, not scripted, not some corporate BS but truly kind of a from the heart, look, we're all in this together. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, I made myself, I've always been an open open door kind of person, but I made myself even more open. And I made sure that people didn't feel like because I wasn't seeing them that they couldn't stop in, right? So I did videotape messages. I sent emails out that were from the heart. I was overly transparent. You know, we're kicking off, this happened right in the end of busy season, and we're kicking off all these new systems implementations. I mean, we're kicking off the last six months, more projects than we have done in 10 years. And we're doing them. I mean, it's been rapid fire, right? So I was really transparent and I maintained a ton of communication even now. So I've had situations where 
Um, we were in 30 days, 45 days in. I got on the phone and spent 30 minutes with every single team member and an hour with each of my directors, right? And then throughout this period, I'm doing it again now, I'm in the middle of it, of reaching back out and on my calendar, 30 minutes with every single team member and an hour, especially for my leaders. And then having much more frequent, we always have weekly meetings, executive meetings, the directors have meetings, but much more meetings with the whole team or multiple levels of the team. And then putting in happy hours and a game of bingo and the cooking challenge and doing all of that. And then of course we've hired four people I'd never met. So we didn't think this would go on this long. And fast forward to today, uh, I started meeting with some of the new employees who are comfortable, some are not comfortable, um, for coffee, social distance coffee, but they've been on the team for several months and I hadn't met them because of COVID. So I think the big thing was, I've seen talk to a number of leaders is there was a lot of reassurance in the beginning. And I remember being two weeks in and and having a great uh, team member of mine and spouse lost their job. They had 11 week old baby, three kids. And all he needed to hear is that you have the ship, that we are financially secure and that my job is not at stake. And so I was overtly honest. And so I, you know, I look, Cry, to, cry on the phone, let's talk through it, and then let's talk about strategy. And so I've spent a lot of time telling my team my strategy and where I'm putting my time. So we are doing acquisitions. Here's where we are. Here's my strategy. And being honest. So we were smart. John and I talked a month before COVID hit, and he said, look, the world can come to an end. Draw down the lines of credit that we don't need and sit on them for a bit. Yep. And so most leaders wouldn't tell their team that. That was the first thing I told people. Yeah because they needed to know that not only were we good financially and we share a, a, a certain amount of our financials with our team, not just the directors, but the team in general, yep. look at our books, we are good, right? I'm not scared, we are going hashtag offense, <laughs> which is, you can actually Google it and, and the video is online. Sharing my strategy, sharing you know, what we're going to do, not hiding that we may be going into a recession, right? They don't want to hear corporate BS. Right. They don't want to hear me blowing smoke up them, right? right? So being honest, we may not hit the growth goals this year that we want, but we are still good. We're still going to hit these growth goals. Yeah. And here's what we're going to do to change our strategy, whether it is hiring, whether it is business development, whether it is how we run our teams yep. and, and having them be a voice in it. So, you know, I didn't doomsday talk them. I didn't blow smoke up them. It was much more of, hey, I'm very transparent. That's my leadership style, right? They know I don't lie to them. Right. So be 100% transparent. Let them know. I do understand this is what's going to affect our industry. And this is what will not affect our industry. Right. And I was even honest in, hey, I expect some attrition on this part of the business. Yep. And I expect rapid growth at this part of the business, but this isn't going to come until Q4. Right. But if you have those open conversations with your team, then they trust you. They understand that you're not pie in the sky. You know, they know that you have a strategy, then they're still okay. Right. Right. And so we do town halls, we do all this, but it's been overall more transparency and more communication, but it is difficult. It's like you, like we talked about before, you hope your team's intact, but you can't sit across the table and look at them. Right. And Zoom meetings just are not the same. Yep. It, it, it's getting, in my opinion, a little bit old. 
Yeah, there's Zoom fatigue is a real thing. Yeah. Um, all right. We got some fun personal ones and uh, and then we'll bring it home. You kind of said you had a a morning routine, but do you have do you have a morning routine? Something you do every day? Pre-COVID or post? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so, pre-COVID. Yeah. So um I'm not a huge routine person, to be honest. It's my personality. Yep. Uh, but I run really fast and I don't take a lot of time in the morning. Yeah. So I typically am up, feed the pets. I've got two dogs and two cats. Uh, shower and get out the door, get okay. to the office. So I move, I move pretty darn quickly in the morning. I'm I'm pretty efficient in and out. It's definitely been a change with COVID. Yep. I typically honestly start my day a little bit earlier. I just, you know, I get up, same type of thing, uh, feed the pets. They seem to like to eat every day. Yeah, so, so <laughs> they still like eating. That, that hasn't changed uh, twice a day. So feed them, uh, typically shower, um, and then kick off the day. I try to I try to not have Zoom meetings first thing in the morning unless I have to. Yep. I like to kind of take care of emails and take care of pressing things. And then, um, as you know, there's just a number of Zoom meetings and calls. But um, try to find a little bit of variety. Yeah. So I've uh, we've talked about it. We're not in the office, but we're going to be going back soon on an optional basis. Uh, so I, I tend to move around a lot in the house. I've got about four different desks that I rotate, oh. and it gives me some sort of variety in the day. But man, it, it seems like uh, the routine is now Groundhog Day. There's a lot of young folks probably coming out of college that you know, when they started their year thought, you know, the world's got plenty of jobs, things are going to be awesome. If you just had to give them some advice for, uh, you know, the people that are graduating, maybe this December, or next May, what would you tell them? I love this question. Uh, I've spoken to three universities the last three nights. This is kind of big time for them in the, in the career center. So um, I absolutely love doing this. Uh, the number one piece of advice that I say is your career is not the ladder you think it is. I think we go through college, we graduate, you think there's so much pressure on picking the first job, right? Because the first job is going to determine the second job. It's going to determine the third job. And so I think a lot of people think your career is just like a ladder where you climb straight up. And certainly if you were to look at my background, you'd see it's not. But I've also learned a lot of other executives or leaders, their background is neither. So you go up one, you go over two to the right, you go diagonal up to the left, you go up two, you go sideways three. And it may seem very, very odd, you know, like you may look at it and not see what it is, but some of the skill set that has made me the most successful in my job are skills and things that I learned in my least favorite job. So I tell them, you may not, you may get the, the job of your dreams, but know that you may not, and that's okay. Because what you're going to do is you're going to get a good job, whatever that good job is, and you're going to give it 150%. And you're going to learn everything you can for a time period. Now, that time period might be a year, two years, five years, you never know, right? But don't place so much emphasis on that first job and, and be absolutely devastated that you graduated from great college, great GPA, you know, all these plans, and then something that you can't help happens. Because you know this, we've been in business long enough that things don't always go the way you plan. Yep. And a good bit, I think, of success is how you handle the things that happen that you didn't plan. For sure. Yeah, what did, it's Mike Tyson's quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched, punched in, in the, the face. face. Yeah. 
I actually uh, COVID's the punch in the face. I actually used that as an opening line in one of my speeches. You did. To, if you ask me my two favorite quotes, I would tell you um, that one. Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And another one um, that an old executive coach gave me is he was a boxer. Is that you know a boxing uh, you don't become a champion in one round, right? So you have to look at everything you do in life and your career as one step, one punch, one round at a time. Yep. And so especially in a time like now, I use those quotes all the time with my team. Yep. Like, don't worry about if, what, but, could, might happen in six months or a year. You literally do one step, one punch, one round at a time. Your only goal is to win that round. And then you will start another round, yep. right? And if you were to look at your career and you were to look at things like that, you accomplish a lot more in that one step, one punch, one round at a time. I love it. My next question was, what's the best advice you've ever received? But that's pretty good advice right there. That's the best advice. And I, then someone gave me a poem last year, and I've used this in a speech too, is it's... Um, you know, it's not the critic that counts. It's yeah. the one who's in the arena. In, in the arena. Yeah, blood, you know, face marred, blood, sweat, tears. And so I tell people that as well. Like, don't worry about what outsiders say or what critics say. Like, the credit goes to the people that are on the field. And so I'm very open about this. And we've won. We've been fortunate. We've won uh, some awards the last few years. And I've had some personal recognition yeah. the last few years. Um, the best was that I was the seventh fastest growing company in the U.S. led by an LSU alum I a couple it. years ago. That's that awesome. was, I mean, of all the awards like that one that to me, just going back to your alumni and being recognized for that. Although I'm not going to lie, I was a little pissed that I was seven. Yeah. <laughs> so I have, some, <laughs> I will win it as number one yeah. in, in the coming years. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm always very open that it's not me, right? I'm, I'm lucky enough to steer the ship. And I have a group of 56 other people who sit behind me who row and row and row day in and day out. Yep. And I always say, look, keep slinging it. Yep. You're just going to keep slinging it and keep slinging it. And then you look back at the end of the year and you're like, wow, how did we accomplish all that? Yep. And it's just from that, just keep hacking away, keep going. Yep. How do you need an elephant one bite at a time? Exactly. All right. Is there a best book that you've ever read? Early in my career, Lean In. Okay. And I know it's very cliche. Yeah. Um, I've suggested not only that that women read it, but men read it. I think Sheryl Sandberg did a really good job of um, practical advice, especially as you're early in your career, of things you should do and not do and things that people do not even realizing they're doing it. Yep. Um, I thought that was really, really good. Okay. Um, nowadays, I have a lot of a lot of books I like. I do like Patrick Lencioni's books. I nope, think those are really good. Okay. Um, he does a lot on fiction. It's nonfiction and it's a business book. It's a lot about um, kind of having a team come together and how the worst thing you could have in a team is complacency. Yeah. So you never want to get a bunch of people in a room to brainstorm or talk about a topic or. Uh, anything and everyone just go along with it. Yeah. Like you need to have people who challenge and having people that challenge and ask questions and provide a different view. That's the sign of a healthy team. Yep. So I stress that a lot to my team of if I sit around and we talk about something and everyone's just like, yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. I'm like, no, no, someone needs to challenge it. Someone needs to present 
We need healthy discussion, right? And healthy arguments Mm -hmm. because that's how you come to a much better endpoint. And we actually, in our company, a good point, we use EOS to run our business. And we have for the last 18 months, it's been really good for us. Um, But I got all of my directors in and we we didn't do our our typical quarterly planning offsite because of COVID. So I said, you know what? Instead of just the executive team doing it, I'm gonna have all my directors do it. So we solicited goals and things that the team thought suggestions would move the needle from the whole team. We came back, we had over 100 suggestions. Some were small, some were literally huge systems implementations. All the directors spent time reviewing it, analyzing it, making their own list. And then we literally all got together for a day by Zoom, which was exhausting, exhilarating and exhausting, right? Because of Zoom. And hashed out what the most important things were. And there were some pretty heated discussions, right? Because you might really want something, but if it really only benefits 25% of the company, but this other systems thing is going to benefit the whole company. And we went through this. And I mean, we had to get down to five big goals with some smaller ones under it. And so you start from 100 and you get to five. And we spent time, we spent the first two hours hashing it out. And, but we did it and it was healthy. And in the end, everyone's happy. And it doesn't mean we can't do your project. It just might be the next quarter. Or it might be that we do a portion of it listed under one of the goals. And I was so proud of our team because of the healthy discussion that took place. And, you know, even somewhat argumentative, which is good. I want you to fight for what you believe in. I want you to present your case, whether you win or lose. At the end of the day, all I ask is that whatever the decision is by the group, not me, the decision by the group, that you stand behind it, Yep. right? And the next quarter, you can fight like hell for your your project if it wasn't on there. And so it ended up that our team for the 90-day period has put in six months of projects. That's awesome. And I warned them not to. I was like, mm-hmm. guys, you're committing to this and and I don't care how many projects you pick, but I am gonna hold your feet to the fire if you tell me you can do them. Yep. And they said, absolutely, we'll think about it. Came back and said, we're not cutting anything. We're gonna get in this 90 days done, uh, six months of projects. And we're gonna divvy it out across all 57 people. So everyone has at least four hours of a project. Some people are putting in, you know, 50. Yep. But it's healthy discourse, right? If everyone had come and just said, yeah, it's fine. You want to do that project. It's fine. It's not, you know, and not presented a case and not been passionate about it. How likely you think those people are to go bust their tail, put in extra hours to actually complete the project? They're not. They're not. Because they're not bought bought in. in. Yep. How can people reach you or find you or your company? Our company. Yeah. Straightcapital.com. That's right. So website, AIT, so like straight lane, if you're Dallas or Fort Worth, straight lane, um, S-T-R-A-I-T capital.com. Find me on LinkedIn. I've made myself pretty public, uh, certainly, or you're welcome to email me. And I I put my email on my LinkedIn and everything. I would look forward to connecting. If you want to grab coffee, pick my brain, uh, always happy to do that or lunch uh, or jump on a Zoom nowadays or a phone call. Uh, I love meeting new people. And so always up for it and always happy to provide even if it's you know industry related, you're like, hey, can I just get some advice on something I'm thinking of doing? Happy to give you advice. Happy to pull in a technical person if it's going to go kind of beyond my expertise. Um, or if you just want to get together and shoot the shit. I like that too. I love so, it. Thank you. Awesome. This Appreciate was awesome. it. Have a good day. 
Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.